We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. The Adult Improver series is back. I just wrapped recording a great interview with an accomplished improver, Dennis Markov, who's gained hundreds of points uh, while he has two young kids at home and maintaining a full-time job. But as you will hear Dennis discuss, he makes chess a priority. He spends at least an hour a day on it, and it's he competes frequently, and it's paid great dividends for him. So Dennis doesn't feel like he's doing anything revolutionary, but uh, I think his story really shows the value of daily practice. And we will get you to that interview in a minute. But first, I wanted to give a shout out to Perpetual Chess Patreon supporters. You guys make a huge difference in keeping the podcast going. And of course, those who support Perpetual Chess via Patreon are able to submit questions for guests. They're also able to join the Perpetual Chess Discord. Uh, For those who join at the $5 per month tier, you can get access to ad-free Perpetual Chess. And of course, any Perpetual Chess Patreon member can attend the occasional uh, Zoom hangout or Grandmaster lecture, as the case may be. We will be organizing another one soon. I wanted to particularly give a shout out to recent Perpetual Chess Patreon pledges, including James Wilson, John Messier, Go-Go Ranger. I'm suspicious that Go-Go Ranger's real name is Go-Go Ranger. John Callahan, Chris Moore, Fletcher Ray, and Jacob Ludwig. Thanks for supporting the pod. Uh, If anyone else is interested in joining the Perpetual Chess Patreon community, as always, the link will be in the show description. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable. Chessable is dropping some bangers. So I already mentioned that uh, Silman's Endgame course is out now. Obviously, that's a must-have, and it's exciting to have uh, I am Alex Bonzea presenting the content. He is a great presenter, and it's like, as I've mentioned in my book and other places, one-stop shopping for learning your basic endgames all the way up to the master level. So it's great that that is finally on Chessable, but they've got some great new stuff, too. Uh, friend of the pod, legendary trainer and author Jan Johan Helsten is out with a new course, Mastering Chess Defense. Obviously, that's a must-have. Chess trainers love his material because he always has so many well-explained positions, and chess improvers can always learn so much from this fantastic teacher. And another friend of the pod, Grandmaster Erwin Lemie, when I interviewed him more than a year ago, he mentioned he was working on a a Slav course, and it is now out. There is a Lifetime Repertoires uh, Slav course by 
Grandmaster Erwin Lemie, one of the top theoreticians in the world. Of course, he's worked as a second for Topalov and Anish Giri. And as is often the case, you can check out a free preview from Chessable. So check out that as well as a lot of my all-time favorites. Um, and yeah, that's about it in terms of housekeeping. I'm excited to get you to this interview with Dennis Markov. So uh, let's get you straight to it. I hope you enjoy it. And we are here with Dennis Markov. Dennis is a 39-year-old who works full-time as a director of operations in a large company. He's got two kids, two and four years old. Dennis recently made a popular Reddit post detailing how he went from 1740 to 2040 USCF in just two years. Uh, It's not going to surprise you that part of the answer to that is he worked very hard. Uh, Dennis actually lives not very far from where I live in New Jersey, so I have met him a couple times at local tournaments. Was not aware of this landmark success that he had until I saw the post, but now I'm super excited because I think uh, his approach is very logical And I think uh, we all can learn a lot from how he has approached chess and why he's been able to make these uh, excellent chess games. So, Dennis, congratulations and welcome to the pod. Good to chat. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. I really appreciate uh, your invitation. And uh, I've been a huge fan of the podcast. So it's, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And you're quite the success story as well. I mean, um, it's, you know, Listeners who listen every week or listen to all the adult improver interviews will probably have heard me struggle recently with like trying to find the right balance between highlighting people like yourself who are kind of like the outliers. I mean, let's face it, not everyone is able to gain 300 points in a couple years, especially when they're starting from the relatively high level of the 1700s. Um, So I do think it's great to share people like yours' stories. But I also want people to know that 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 won't happen for everyone. But nonetheless, there are certainly things to learn from your approach. And I'm eager to dig into that, as you have done in your Reddit post. And I, I know we've exchanged some emails and stuff. So I have uh, an inkling of why you've been so successful. But before we get into what drove your success, I'm curious, what drives your work ethic? I mean, as you've you've written you play 80 to 90 rated games a year. You've got a busy life. Yet when your kids go to bed, you're doing puzzles for 60 to 90 minutes. So to quote uh, my friend Avtek Gregorian, what is your why? Why are you working so hard, Dennis? Look, I mean, I generally love the game, right? When it comes to chess, I like the logic of the game. I like the harmony of the game. I like... um you know, geometry of the board. I like pieces interactions. I like the development of different plans. Something that sort of attracts me from my professional perspective as well is the way of thinking about a chess game, right? So when you're playing this, you constantly have to go from this larger strategic level when you think about the whole board, about plans, about, you know, major strategic themes like which side of the board should you be playing on for example and then you always have some very tactical very tactical motives when you go to specific moves you need to calculate certain move orders and you need to somehow find smaller tactical things in this large strategic plan right so that that's what excites excites me about the game right when it comes to working hard i think my general approach when it comes to anything in life is trying to improve at whatever i do you know if i'm interested in something if i'm passionate about something i just try to work harder on that because it's interesting to discover new things it's interesting to find new ideas you know it's interesting to see what's next what's around the corner And do you have days, I mean, so again, giving up your nights often after the kids go to bed, like are there days where you don't want to do it or are you just always excited to study chess? 
Um, no, there are definitely days when I when I I'm not really feeling like like studying chess a lot, and that could be related to some personal issues, personal events in my life. Right? Let's say recently I had to travel ten time zones away from where I live, so that was pretty painful in terms of adjusting to to you know time changes and all these things. So I didn't spend too much time working on chess. But on the other hand, I'm generally very curious about, you know, studying something new, you know, going through some interesting topics, you know, maybe solving some tactics. So in general, I like this, right? And then I think there is also a difference between, again, you know, tactical and strategic perspective, right? Because whatever you do in your life, I think you might hate it at some points, right? Uh, even if you like your job, you will still have some routine in it, right? If you study chess, all right, there will be something you're not super excited about, you know, like rook and games are not necessarily my favorite topic, right? But then I know that I want to improve. This is why I would study those as well. And, you know, I know that it, it takes its part in, in the big scheme of things, right? Yeah, well, speaking of your 10 hours of travel, I was going to get a Turkey trip report from you before we started recording, but I forgot. So when we stop recording or at the end, we might we might need to discuss your travels a little bit. But for now, we'll keep it uh, strictly chest focused. So, Dennis, on those days um, where your motivation is not as high, do you force yourself to do it or do you give yourself the occasional day off from from the chess routine? I try to do a little bit, right? But a little bit sometimes means, I don't know, 10 minutes of solving tactics. You know, I would wake up and instead of scrolling my social networks, I would be like, all right, let me solve a couple things here and there, right? Or, you know, during the lunch break or maybe before going to bed, I would still try to at least look at some positions, but it's not like hard work. Sometimes it's like, hey, you know, I just need my chest tempo streak to keep going. You know, right. I will solve a puzzle or two just, just you know, to have something today. Okay. Yeah, I, I've definitely struggled with the streaks. I, As I wrote in my book, I had a 400-day streak on Chessable that I lost. And then I couldn't get one going because once it was low, I just like couldn't couldn't keep my motivation. Finally got one going again. Um, and it was over a hundred days. And then I had a thing where I swear I did the I did review some openings that day, but I logged in the next day and it said my streak was gone. And I didn't try to pull any strings at Chessable to get it <laughs> reinstated. So ever since then my motivation's been gone again. <laughs> so the yeah, those streaks can be um can be super powerful. And so you mentioned 90 minutes again. Uh, at night, in addition to like, uh, it should, you know, we should definitely highlight the frenetic tournament schedule, the busy tournament schedule you're playing as well. Um, I know that, that you're married. You mentioned, I think it was in your Reddit post that your wife is an artist. So she has a more flexible schedule than you do. But is she, how does, is she okay with, uh, with you spending all this time on chess? Is she generally supportive? She's super supportive and she's uh, probably the best wife I could well, not probably. She's definitely the best wife I could ever wished for. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think we, we both try to support each other in our passions, right? So she's all into art. And, you know, every once in a while, she would have some either art classes or live drawing sessions. Or, you know, she would have to travel somewhere to do something over there. And, you know, I will stay with kids and she would do what she needs to do. But then when it comes to chess, she would give me some personal time as well. And I think it's just a good balance to keep, right? On one hand, we have a lot of things in our lives that go together. But on the other hand, we also have our own hobbies and passions and, you know, things we like doing. And when it comes to kids specifically, right, we also discuss that quite quite extensively, right? And we want our kids to see us being passionate about something, being interested in something, right? Not just being, 
you know, not just giving up everything. All right, you know, now our life stops because our kids' life starts, right? No, that's not the case. You know, we want to share our passions. You know, kids are excited about art. You know, they like drawing. They like doing something when it when it comes to, you know, painting or doing things like that. And uh, when it comes to chess, they are just two and four years old. But, you know, they start showing some interest at least. Uh, maybe, you know, not like super in-depth, not learning how to play. But at least, you know, they, they know what the board looks like. They know pieces. They put these pieces on the squares. They try to you know, play some imaginary game with each other. That That's kind of cool to see as well, you know. I don't necessarily want them to share this passion, uh, or at least, you know, I want them to do whatever they want with it, but it's, it's, it's cool to see that they look at things around them and they try to get a little bit of everything. Yeah, we actually had a, a question from a Patreon supporter of the pod, Noah Zucker, wondering uh, with you being so passionate about chess, if you had plans for your kid and, kids in chess, but it's, it sounds like you're open-minded about it. Yeah, look, my only plan for my kids is to be happy, right? Uh, there are plenty of different things you can do in this world. You can try different professions. You can even change things that you do, right? I, in my life, I started as a journalist. Then I went into finance industry. And then last 10 years, I've been doing operations in industrial environment, right? In warehouses, in manufacturing settings and things like that. So you, you can try a lot of things along the way, right? And you can be successful in different things. So... When it comes to kids, I want them to choose. Uh, they show some interest right now. Like, for example, my two-year-old son, he has this book called Chess for Kids. And essentially, it just explains what pieces are called. And it shows how they move. And you have, like, like a cardboard book, you know. And there are, like... Small grooves for your fingers so that you can sort of trace how bishop moves, how rook moves, how pawn moves. And then, you know, he starts reading that, he recognizes all the pieces, and it's, it's kind of funny to hear him, like some of his first words, you know, he says mommy and daddy and, and, and all these things. But then, you know, slightly later, he, he goes through this book with us and he starts saying that, you know, papa is a rook, mama is a bishop, and I am a rook as well. And, you know, that is kind of things, you know, he doesn't necessarily understand all the meaning of it but it's 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 cool to see him you know getting a little bit of of chess related yeah. things in his life and it sounds like again even though you're open-minded you you are passionate enough about chess where like you made sure he got his hands on that book at least and then he can decide how far to go from there i think uh, yes that 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 that's for sure i feel like you know life is about passions right so i'm passionate about something but then you know there are some other people around me who are passionate about something else i feel like if someone is truly passionate about something it's almost inevitable that this passion will at least try to spread around so hopefully he gets a little bit of it yeah now you mentioned your passion for chess dennis but you know you've sent me some information about your background and it's kind of from my perspective this is not unusual but it's been in fits and starts i mean you mentioned you growing up in the former soviet union correct me if i'm wrong but you were born in ukraine and then lived in russia is that right Yep, yep, that's that, that's correct. I was born in Kiev in Ukraine, and uh, when I was about seven years old, my parents moved to Moscow, to Russia, and this is where I spent about 20 years of my life before moving to the United States to study, and eventually I stayed here to work. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, 
but you mentioned you you said you pursued chess for a bit at the famed palaces of pioneers, which of course were these uh, government sponsored, um, not just chess, you, you know, not just chess quote palace, palaces, but ballet and other extracurriculars uh, where kids could devote a lot of time to certain activities that whatever they found enriching and whatever they might have shown some predisposition for. But you mentioned that at that time you didn't feel like you were anything special and it didn't really take. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and also eventually like what you think has changed in recent years. Well, I don't think much has changed in that sense. I don't think I'm anything special. I, 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 you know, I just went to study some chess back then. I didn't know much about all the rich culture of chess, about all the history, right? About all the different things one can learn for, about chess. I essentially knew how pieces moved. And then at some point, my parents thought that it would be a pretty good idea for someone of you know, of my age to develop their logic, develop their, you know, maybe some, I don't know, social skills, if you can develop social skills from chess, but at least, you know, you can sit quietly and think about something and try to figure something over the board. So that was more of a childhood development thing, as opposed to a sport, I guess, when it comes to how my family was thinking about this. And back then I had, I think, a couple classes per week where you would go there, you would have some sort of a coaching session where a coach would walk you through some game or maybe you know explain some basic concepts and then you would play one tournament game per week i believe and this is more like like a long tournament where you had let's say 10 participants each person playing which each each participant right and eventually you score a certain amount of points and then we had our you know fourth category norms third category norms so there was some sort of um, system for for titles but not necessarily a rating, right? We were not not thinking about any rating points back then. Just sort of moving from one category to another, which sort of showed your your performance. And there were some uh, larger tournaments of, you know, a particular district of Moscow, for example, where pupils from some of these chess schools would get together and, you know, essentially play a tournament. I also had a couple of these experiences. And any uh, future... I mean, I my impression... From, you know, from all the interviews I've done and just from uh, studying chess culture, it, it feels like you can shake a tree and like a grandmaster will fall out in the in the former Soviet Union. Were there any future GMs that you remember or were you too young? I was probably too young to remember back then. Uh, I think the system overall, right, if you think about the, the sports development system in the Soviet Union, it was almost like, you know, someone actually described this as throwing a million eggs against the wall. And, you know, most of them will crack, but one of them will not. And this is going to be your future world champion, right? So I think one of the goals of these these establishments was to get as many people as possible through them. And then whenever some talent was identified, you could have some more in-depth classes and activities and study sessions uh, with someone who, who, who is a good coach and who can develop you in a better, better player. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Timothy Ha, another Patreon supporter of the pod. Thank you for helping to support Perpetual Chess. Timothy, he submitted a question and it turns out when I announced that you were a guest, he's on the same team as you in a, um, a Lee Chess League. The team is called the Adult Decliners, which, by the way, they might need to kick you off because you are not declining. Um, but Dennis asks, he says, do you think that being a Russian speaker matters for chess? Do you find Russian chess culture helpful in your improvement or is it all the same in the age of the Internet and translated books? 
it's a good question. Uh, first, I think maybe saying Russian chess culture, we may be slightly oversimplify what it actually is, right? Because when we think about the Soviet history of chess, it's obviously not only about Russia, you know? You can think about the great Ukrainian school of chess, you know, for example, the school of chess in the city of Lviv, where Vasily Vanchuk is coming from, where Muzichuk sisters are coming from, and then, you know, a very well-known chess school in Kramatorsk with Ruslan Panamaryov, and I think Sergei Karyakin participated in some activities out there back in his, you know, Ukrainian days. Uh, and then you can also think about countries like Georgia and Armenia and, you know, Kazakhstan is taking some space, you know, right now. And then, you know, obviously all the chess prodigies from Uzbekistan, that's, that's quite, 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 uh, you know, quite a thing right now as well. So even going back to Soviet times, there were some particular centers of chess, some, you know, cities well known for, you know, local chess culture, and they were Similar in a way, but they were also different in a way, right? But then when it comes to how language relates to this, I feel like most of the content right now is available in English or maybe in some other languages as well. Maybe when it comes pretty handy is when I get get my hands on some really old Soviet book, which has never been translated. Like, for example, you know, I'm going through analytical notes of Batvinik right now, and this is a three-volume, uh, three-volume, you know, set of books going back from, from, from like 60s or 70s, I believe. And it's good. It's valuable. There are a lot of good Batvinik games annotated by himself. I don't think it was... I think it was translated in English, but it was published by some, you know, strange publishing house, which which didn't really promote it too well. So I'm not sure if you can actually find those books. But now the question is, do you actually need those analytical notes? Is this absolutely critical for anyone to succeed? And most likely it's not a deal breaker, right? So I think it, it, it it's convenient, right? It's convenient to get into some Russian Russian language sources. But uh, we are also very far from Bobby Fischer's times where he had to study Russian just to get hold of some, you know, Russian magazines and newspapers and get some chess-related information out of them. Luckily, we have enough content in either language right now. Yeah. If anything, maybe it kind of, you know, keeps you motivated because there's that rich legacy culturally from your sort of, I guess, primarily Ukrainian, but also Russian heritage. But, But yeah, these days there's just so many ways to learn. When we get back, we will hear what got Dennis back into chess in his college years, and then he'll get into his study routine. We'll be right back. And we are back. And before we get sort of deep on what you've done to make this great chess improvement, um, I do kind of want to just um, finish the story of how, of when you when you took time away from chess after attending the Palace of Pioneers and then when you got back into it. So could you could you uh, reveal that timeline for us? You know, it was somewhat random. I think when I was in my early college years, at some point I had a very much unexplainable desire to play some chess. I don't know why, right? I just thought that, hey, you know, there are so many things on the internet right now. Maybe I need to find a way of playing chess online. And the best thing I could find was some website on (laughs) yahoo.com. And it obviously super casual, right? I don't think they ever had any like anti-cheating systems or anything, you know, very, you know, casual players 
you know, office workers playing against each other. I don't think it ever had any, you know, like professional chess community. But I went out there, I played some games, I enjoyed them, and I thought that, hey, maybe I can learn a little bit more about the game. Maybe, in fact, you know, e4, e5, queen f3 is not the best opening. Maybe <laughs> there are better ways of developing pieces. And uh, somehow I got hold of uh, my system. I know it's a little bit of a controversial book. Some people will be super passionate about it. Some people will say that this is like the worst book ever written on chess. I think it helped me. It helped me in a way that I read it and I thought, oh, wait a second. There are better ways of thinking about the game, right? So I went into it. I I tried to study a little bit. And then, you know, I did more research on the internet. I found play chess. I started playing online. And... um, I played for a while, but then I never felt like I had a proper community where I could be a member of. And this what led me to different things in my life. You know, I graduated from college, I pursued a career, and I never really thought about chess until fairly recently. Okay, and what got you back into it recently? Maybe just, you know, the development of online resources. So next time I tried, you know, to play a game of chess online, I found something better than, you know, that that casual website. I found some, some, you know, websites where you can read news about chess. I found some forums, found some discussions, and somehow that feeling of community got me in. I realized that, you know what, it's it's actually pretty, you know, common to have some interest in chess. And there are a lot of people who used to play as kids and then they forgot about it. And then at some point they made a comeback and they realized that, hey, you know, you can enjoy it anytime in your life at any age. And I sort of, you know, just got pulled in and, and, you know, never, never could get out of it. Yeah. And but again, and you've shown decent progress and and I have to say i approve of the sort of framework you've adopted because there's certainly some echoes of some of the stuff i've written about and that you're you've got an emphasis on doing puzzles you've got an emphasis on community you're uh playing a ton at your local club and finding ways to play even beyond that and an emphasis on game review um so those are kind of the major points that i highlight and obviously you've been doing this for years and you know as you mentioned to me when when before we were recording one doesn't need to reinvent the wheel but still it can be hard to settle on the sort of right um components especially if you're sort of obviously you you had some chess culture you knew about the chess world but still there's such a mass of information so so dennis i'm curious like how you settled on those few things and if there were sort of growing pains along the way where you were doing sort of what you now consider to be less productive things uh growing pains is actually uh maybe the main topic of the whole story right in the sense that uh not necessarily all the activities that you like chess or anything else right not necessarily all of them are made of you know 100% pleasure you know uh part of that is that you want to improve and you know that some parts of that improvement journey they're going to be very nice and pleasant and exciting and you will be doing something that you really like doing but maybe parts of that are going to be things that you just have to do, right? So when you have this perspective and you think that, hey, I want to get better at chess because getting better at chess will help me to learn the game better, understand more, have better ideas, better plans, see better logic, see games more in depth. When you think about this, you realize that, hey, it's worth improving, even if sometimes it's not that exciting, you know, not that 
you know, not that amazing from the perspective of, you know, enjoying every second of it, right? So I think that's that's the biggest thing about my approach is just I know that it's going to be a mix of, you know, interesting things and routine. It's going to be a mix of something that, you know, makes me truly excited about the game and something that is maybe not that exciting. But I know that overall it it makes the whole thing wall, right? It, it makes the whole thing more, more full, more, more maybe uh more gratifying or, or, right yeah. right 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 it sort of adds to your experience and then when you have good and bad things about the journey then it all comes together as a better experience as a whole okay and so so what are the things that so you mentioned you're doing some things that you're not as excited to do and some that you are what are the things that you're excited to do uh i generally like solving tactics uh i realize that um it's just important to stay in shape not necessarily you need, I, I would say in general, you know, when people think about tactics, they think about improving calculations. And uh, at some point I realized that, all right, maybe, you know, maybe at a higher level, I truly need much better calculation skills. But also when you're around maybe 15, 1600, you sort of tend to overvalue the importance of calculation. In fact, you need to calculate next two, three moves, do this precisely, but you don't necessarily have to calculate long lines, right? Uh, but but at least, you know, in terms of staying in shape, in terms of seeing some, you know, tactical motives, that's, that's important, right? I feel like time spent on tactics is always useful. If you cannot do anything else, just do some tactics. And then I think when it comes to strategic play, uh, end game strategy, middle game strategy, that's that's pretty exciting as well, because this is essentially about your decision making in a game of chess. And it also evolves over time and it also improves over time. And spending more time consciously thinking about moves over the board makes you better at it. So I think these are most most exciting things for me. Okay. And and the less exciting parts? Um, you know, a while ago I would say opening study. But I think now I realize there are better ways of studying openings, right? Not just memorizing moves, not just, you know, following particular lines, not just trying to follow some, you know, you know, ambiguous line with, you know, plus or minus or whatever evaluation at the end, but more of trying to think about how your opening moves relate to your middle game strategy and what's the actual purpose of each move. And then when you 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 see this as a as a system right when you see those things connected i feel like you can study openings in a way more uh meaningful in a way more mindful way right when you just don't think about moves you think about ideas behind these moves and that that, that makes it pretty exciting as well yeah and you you mentioned in your reddit post that you've been working with a grandmaster coach uh and that that he he helped you see the light in that regard Oh, exactly. Right. My my grandmaster coach is uh, David Arutinian. He is coming from the Republic of Georgia, and he's a FIDE senior trainer. He used to work with some well-known uh, players, some well-known grandmasters. Uh, among those names, I would probably mention, well, Katie Tsatsalashvili, who is a very prominent uh, chess commentator nowadays, but she's also a pretty strong player, and uh, she's a woman grandmaster. Then uh, Jansai Abdumalik, the famous Kazakhstan player and uh, he used to be a coach of the Georgian Olympic team 
So and 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 as a player, he was slightly below twenty six hundred at his peak, and then he moved on to full time coaching. Right. So when we started studying, my initial my initial thought was that hey, I'm going to get a coach, and I will maybe work on my opening repertoire, and maybe we will go through some game analysis, and you know, I had very sort of broad idea of what I wanted from this, right? Uh, but then when we started looking at certain games, he started asking some very basic questions that I never had any answers for. Like, for example, I show him a game of mine and I show a certain opening and he's asking, so what are your plans for this game? And I'm like, what What do you mean? What are my plans, right? I'll just <laughs> take it move by move. And he says, all right, are you playing on the king side or on the queen side? Let's start with basics. And I don't know. Right. And he says, all right, maybe, you know, there are different ways, you know, there are different ways of playing a game, but there is also a great wealth of, you know, great depth of chess knowledge that has been built over years. And there are certain typical plans, certain typical ideas, certain typical pawn structures that can make this thought process a little bit more meaningful for you. And then the same way as you can work on some tactical patterns, you know, you have certain certain motifs that, that you keep rehearsing and then, you know, they get more automated. Uh, same way you can do this with strategic ideas, with pawn structures, with typical plans, and then you just don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You just you just know what is typically done in those positions. And you can also use mistakes made by your opponents when you see that they do something strategically wrong from the very beginning. The engine is not going to tell you this, right? You will look at the engine. The engine is going to say that, let's say, you know, it's slightly better for you. It's plus 0.5 or whatever. But then maybe it's plus 0.5, but the game is already strategically lost for your opponent because they just went the route where they will not have any active play for the rest of the game. So why don't you think more about strategy? That was his advice and that was his conclusion. And we started exploring more strategic strategic components of the game. And I think that made me realize that, you know, I've been thinking about the whole game of chess in, in a slightly wrong way. So you you started to learn to think more big picture about your openings and and focusing less on lines. Um, and what advice would you have for listeners about like how like the nuts and bolts of of doing that? I would say playing slow games that's definitely super helpful. Games where you can actually think about every move, and then later when you try to do some analysis, you remember why certain moves were made or were not made, right? That's one thing. The second one is trying to look more into annotated games. And in that sense, let's say the chess-based database might be helpful or just, you know, searching something online or maybe trying to find some educational videos, not entertaining videos, right? But videos where a strong player would do in-depth analysis and they would explain some ideas, some thoughts behind certain moves. And uh, I think the biggest thing is not just seeing computer eval or the biggest thing is not just seeing that, hey, you know, all right, I had a choice of certain moves here and I made this move and it went from, let's say, plus one to minus two and this is how I lost, right? The question is what exactly was wrong with this move and what was wrong with your plan and where did it go the wrong direction so that that mistake happened? Because by the way, you know, if your computer eval goes from, let's say, one to 
point two, not necessarily this is just a straightaway simple, simple, simple blunder, right? Maybe you chose the wrong plan in the first place. And this is what led you to the point where you had to make a very difficult choice in very difficult circumstances in a position that's not necessarily, you know, um, positive for you, right? Not necessarily this position is, is easy to play, right? So maybe you just went with the wrong plan in the first place and this is what you led you to that that specific mistake. But then when you see the whole thing, when you see things more strategically, you can make better calls, better decisions, and you can understand your games better. I would say annotated games, well annotated games is definitely the best best source of knowledge for that. Okay, and as someone, Dennis, who plays as often as you do, by the way, I mean, on, with you playing so many OTB games a year, I can't believe you're doing the Lee Chess League with uh, Timothy Ha as well. Oh, I stopped. I stopped, oh, okay. right. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been doing it for quite a while, and then I realized I would focus on uh, OTB ch chess better. But uh, we still have our group on Slack where we have all our team members. Maybe now there are 20 of us coming from different seasons, but somehow they stick around Timothy, and he's our eternal captain, you know, leading us to the bright future. Even though some of us do not play that actively, we still stay in touch. We talk to each other. We share some, you know, experiences from tournaments, from OTB games. We follow each other games on DHS. So we're still together, oh, even though not necessarily all of us are participating. Okay, that's great. It was one of those things where I'm like trying to add up the hours in your week and I'm like, hold on, <laughs> he's doing he's doing the DHS League as well. Um, but let me ask you, so as someone who plays so often, I do think that you've shared some helpful advice on openings but what's your philosophy with regard to like a, a narrow versus a broad repertoire are you kind of focused on core openings or are you playing different stuff no i'm trying to stick to a very particular set of openings it's not a very broad repertoire uh it's it's in fact very narrow but i think it sort of evolves over time because i think the best thing to begin with is just all right what are typical let's say right what are my basic answers to e4, d4, c4, knight f3, right? When you have at least like first couple moves, you, you have at least some idea of what might evolve, right? Let's say against e4, for example, you play, I don't know, you play, you play Karakhan, right? Then there is just a certain number of lines as then as, as you start studying it more in depth, you start looking at particular lines, particular variations, and you get deeper and deeper and deeper and more you play more interesting things you see when you do subsequent analysis so in that sense i stick to a very narrow repertoire uh, but i also try to find new lines new ideas maybe new things to try sometimes you know i would let's say get some repertoire course i will see that all right this is like you know this is the line that's recommended by this grandmaster and i will try to play it a couple times and i will realize you know what positions i'm getting are maybe fine but i don't understand them really well so now the question is should i study those positions more or maybe should i study something that matches my current level of development better so that you know i can get some results right now not two years later okay and you correct me if i'm wrong but you're playing pretty frequently at your local club so i'm guessing that that means that you play um you're playing some of the same players um more than once is that true dennis yeah, I, I play one game a week at the Westchester Chess Club. By the way, it's an amazing place. If you live uh, anywhere close to the Philadelphia area, worth visiting. We get about 30 players each week and we play slow over the board games, so 100 minutes per uh, per game for, for each player. So uh, I do 
tend to play same people over and over. And initially, I thought that, you know, that's quite a bit of a disadvantage because not necessarily you will develop that well if you get same opponents every, every you know, every few weeks. But then on the other hand, if, even if you think about uh, playing chess at a really high level, you know, most of the time you get you get same same opponents over and over again, I guess, at any spot of your chess development, right? So uh, I think it's both helping and not in the sense that they can prepare to something that you play and you can prepare to something they play and it sort of tests your opening repertoire better but it also gives you motivation to look for different ideas and maybe to look deeper into some openings that otherwise you would never look in but then you know it it always comes in handy you know when it comes to some larger tournament where you suddenly see the same line and you already know what to play in it even though your opponent maybe was trying to catch you by surprise okay so you're not um you're not developing like a b repertoire even though you like you might be a air quote stationary target for a certain opponent if you're black against them for the third time or something you Look, as of now, I'm develop- I- I'm struggling even with my A repertoire, right? Yeah. right? Maybe when, when I'm done with that, I will try to develop my B repertoire and maybe some yeah. C repertoire and maybe something else for Blitz and Bullet or whatever. But at this point, I feel like, you know, there is still more more, more interesting things I can get from, from my basic openings. Yeah, well, we all feel that way, I think. I mean, at least as amateurs, we all feel like our openings could be better but is that like really rooted in reality like obviously you again you've had outlier gains um so it doesn't seem like your openings are holding you back but do you feel like for your 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 rating of now over 2000 uscf do you feel like there are relative weakness your openings compared to other aspects of your game uh Maybe to an extent, maybe, right? But I also don't think that this is such a dramatic weakness that's really holding me back right now. In a sense that I don't remember well, I, I well, I do remember because it's it's very painful to remember. So you remember this for a long time, but I don't lose a game straight out of an right. opening too often, right? If I get a playable position, it's maybe slightly better or a tiny little bit worse. That's that's probably good enough, right? Because I don't think you will win or lose too many games in the opening unless you do something, you know, unless you remember every single move or maybe, you know, you do something uh, something atrociously bad, right? So in that sense, I don't think that's, that's a major weakness. But, you know, there is also this um, constant feeling that I'm sure many chess players have experienced that anytime you go to play in, in any larger tournament, you go there and you almost feel like, you know what, if I had a couple weeks more to prepare, I would have been in such a better shape. Right. Like just a tiny little bit more, I would be in such a better shape, right? But then, you know, you play in the next tournament a couple months down the road and you're, 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 you're still there. You know, you always have this feeling. And I had this feeling when I was, you know, at 16, 1700 and I have this feeling at 2000 right now. And I'm sure, you know, you will have this feeling anytime, right? You can always do something better. But in that sense, uh, playing chess uh, is an interesting activity in the sense that you you sort of need, if you are a perfectionist, you need to kill that feeling in you, right? Because it's not about knowing all ins and outs. It's not about playing absolutely precisely, right? It's not about your 99.9 whatever percent chess.com accuracy. It's just winning a game. You can make 10 mistakes along the way, and if you win, you won, right? And if you played a generally nice game, but something happened and you lost, then you lost. In that sense, chess is a very fair game, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. After the break, Dennis will get into his routine for solving chess puzzles, plus much more. And we are back. And Dennis, I also wanted to talk about the exercises you're doing. So you've mentioned chess tempo. I know you're also doing chess steps. You've mentioned in your Reddit post that you'll use a physical set for the exercises that you're doing. Uh, How did you settle on those resources and that routine? Yeah, so uh, I have chess tempo. Chess tempo, obviously, I solve it either on my laptop or on my phone, and I I would not set a physical board for that. I use physical board for playing through games, Mm -hmm. playing through classical games or maybe even some modern games. And then every once in a while, I would have some books, like, for example, uh, books by Arthur Yusupov. I feel like examples are definitely worth studying on the on an actual physical board, but also when it comes to exercises, a good deal of those are fairly difficult. So it's also nice to set them on the board and maybe sit for 10-15 minutes thinking about, you know, more more difficult puzzles. When it comes to chess steps, uh, to the steps method, I think it really depends on the level of difficulty. So I just went through the step five, which is supposed to be aiming on players at about 1900 level. So what I did, I went through all the sessions in that step one by one, and I solved all the puzzles in the basic workbook. And I solved them just, you know, seeing them on the page without using the board, just, you know, looking at the printout and solving this in in my head, right? Whether this is for white or for black, I would just look at the board the way it is and I would try to solve it. Then for all the topics where I scored less than uh, 75%, I took these topics separately. You know, I had a list of these topics and then I solved all the puzzle for these topics from the extra workbook, from the plus workbook. So essentially all the additional exercises you can get. And at least I made sure that I pay enough attention and I focus on these exercises and I get above, you know, 75, 80% correct. So now I went through the whole book, through all the workbooks, and I went through extra workbooks for topics where I thought that I was struggling. Uh, Now I'm going to start step six and I'm going to see if it's any better or worse. Most likely it's going to be more difficult. So maybe I will need a little bit more, you know, iterations on each topic to to get this this correct. Uh, But but, uh, overall, that's the plan, right? For more simple tasks, I try to solve it from the book. And for more difficult tasks, I will try to set it on the board. When it comes to playing through games, I will set them on the board. But then when it comes to shorter sub-variations or annotations, I would try to play them in my my head at least until I see the point of the author. Like, for example, there is a variation which says that um, that move was not possible because after this, 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 and this, Black loses a piece. And I will try to visualize it all the way so that I can see why Black is losing that piece, right? And maybe there is some simple tactic at the end, but, you know, I will still try to keep this position in my head and I will think, all right, you know what? I got how it works now. Let's move on with the next next move of, of, of the game. Okay. Yeah. And for listeners who, I mean, chess steps come up probably regularly enough in the podcast where a lot of listeners will be familiar with them. But uh, just in case anyone isn't, uh, there's a Dutch curriculum. Uh, there, It's a Dutch curriculum. And as Dennis mentioned, he's at step five, which is approximately 1800 to 2000 level. And there's six steps. So the, the, the good thing about the curriculum is that you know, basically from, you know, 900 on up, 
You can find a series of books that are reasonably well-suited, and it's mostly tactical puzzles, but not completely. Um, they're inexpensive. The only downside is there are no real explanations for the um, answers. So um, if you're working on your own, Dennis is strong enough where um, he's often going to be able, as he just mentioned, to, to figure out the answers. But I think for newer players, that is a potential friction point, um, and it can be helpful to work with a coach or at least have a coach that for the answers that you don't understand. Uh, you can like set the problems aside and ask them about. Yeah, I think it becomes a little bit more strategic over time. So, for example, if steps one and two are simple tactics, step six is a little bit more strategic. Uh, typical topics would be, let's say, king in the center or attacking on the king side or, you know, something along these lines. And then they have um, manuals for, for teachers, for, for coaches, where they also explain at least ideas behind some topics. At least the valuable, I, I think the valuable thing about these books as well, about workbooks specifically, is that First, you can go through things that you think you know and actually test if that's the case. Like, for example, I'm pretty good when it comes to Rook and Pawn versus Rook endgames. I solved a lot of these. I have, I, I know ideas. I know how to win. I know how to draw, right? Uh, but still, you know, you go through, I don't know, 24, 36 puzzles on that topic and you realize that there might be some more you know intricate positions where it takes a little bit more than basic knowledge to at least you know simplify it to the extent where you would face a position you already know so in that sense it's simple you know you go through these topics if something is very easy for you you're going to solve the whole set of 12 exercises in maybe 10 minutes and you'll be like all right you know at least i know this that's good let's move on but then every once in a while even at lower steps you will find something where you would think oh you know what i sort of missed this and over time i get this feeling that it's a curriculum right so you go through this and you get a body of knowledge right you don't get particular topics it's not like you know i was excited about the french defense i watched that youtube video now i know about the, the, this particular line, but maybe, you know, there are a ton of different things I'm missing. Here, you go through these topics, you go through steps, and eventually you get to the point where you feel like, all right, you know, there is like something I know about chess. It sort of starts here, it ends here, and it's, it's, it's a set of knowledge. It's not just random thoughts, things here and there, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, they really do have a wide variety of puzzles and cover a, a lot of topics. So definitely, you could do worse than that as a resource. Um, now, Dennis, in terms of your coach, um, I'm curious, is it mostly game review that you're doing with with him or uh, what sort of work do you do with your coach and how often do you guys meet? So we get together every week. We have uh, one uh, lesson and the duration of that lesson is one hour. We go through the game I played that week. And uh, as I mentioned, I have weekly games at the local chess club. So it's always at least one game per week. And then every once in a while, I would take the whole weekend to play in some of those weekend tournaments where you can get five or six games in two or three days. And then, you know, we would go through this. Uh, the game review, it depends on the game, but it might take anywhere from, let's say, 15 minutes to 45 minutes, or maybe the whole hour if the game is really complex, right? Um, most of the time we would go through the game and uh, some of general concepts that I missed. My coach will give me some maybe similar examples from classical games or maybe from his games or maybe from games of his uh, students as well. Like, for example, uh, last week I actually lost a pretty 
painful game, right? So I showed this to my coach and, you know, we went through some mistakes I made. And then he also said that, oh, you know what? I have this game uh, by Simagin from 19... 19- 58 and let me show you this structure but you know what this structure that's 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 really interesting because you know what there is that fourth game between uh kasparov and karpov from their second world championship match and this is the same pawn structure and this is how they played it and you can see how you know karpov slowly outplayed his opponent by by doing this this and that and it sort of helps you to get those concepts and maybe connect them to a more general picture when it's not just hey you know you made some mistake here but also you know what there are some examples there are some examples to demonstrate that that idea uh maybe a good example would be our first lesson ever he went through the database of my games i sent him about 100 games i had recorded he went through this and one of his particular topics for the first class was uh, the topic of two bishops uh why two bishops are better than bishop versus knight most of the time so he showed me a couple classical examples and then he also sent me a game from a recent chess olympiad and he essentially said look i mean this is an end game you have four pawns on each side you have two bishops versus bishop and knight and maybe the computer says that it's not it's like it's holdable it's not lost yet right it's not lost by any means but then if you look at next 60 moves this is where this player with two bishops was chasing his opponent and his opponent was suffering through those 60 moves and just think about how easy versus how difficult it was to play for each of those two participants and you know you get some of these ideas and you can see how how your game relates to some games played before and you also realize that it's same thing as you know tactical patterns where you see you know same types of checkmates or same types of tactics over and over again and eventually you learn to find them pretty fast in your games same goes with strategy when you realize you know what this pawn structure it's been there before you know there are some games played in a similar way there are similar ideas similar thoughts similar plans and this is how great players of you know past years they 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 got to where they got and and that starts making more sense you just memorize this better and every once in a while when we go through a game he would stop for a second and he would say all right now what's what's a good move for white and why and i think the coolest thing for me is that i, I not only like not only it's interesting whether i'm thinking whether i made a mistake or not right it's interesting whether i'm thinking the right way so i can actually walk him through my thoughts explain that all right you know in this position i made this move because i thought that i had a choice of three moves this move was something i didn't like for that reason that move i didn't like for this reason in this case all right i'm giving up a pawn but at least i get some activity i'm thinking there is a compensation for it and this is what my logic is and then he would say something like all right you know that makes sense that's that's reasonable i would probably do the same or he would say you know what this is completely wrong because you know this is this is not the direction you should be going and let me explain you why and he would explain in a more strategic way but then he might also show some tactical ideas that you know right you know that sort of makes sense but you know unfortunately that blunders a piece right so uh, that that's very helpful just in terms of describing my train of thought and getting immediate feedback am i thinking right about this or maybe i'm completely completely going the opposite direction you know Okay. Yeah. Sounds sounds like a great teacher. I mean, it sounds like there's plenty plenty to learn from from David. Look, the, the biggest thing for me was finding an actual teacher, right? Finding an actual coach, someone who coaches people professionally. And we also set some goals in terms of you know certain performance, certain maybe rating goals. I don't want to go super 
in depth on that because probably disclosing that means more commitment. Uh, but with that, with that, it's it, it's important to have someone who knows how to teach because there are plenty of good players who play really well, but not necessarily they can explain their exact thought process or their exact logic. In fact, you know there is a well-known story when uh, Mikhail Batvinik was trying to develop a chess computer one of these like earlier chess programs that was supposed to think like a grandmaster. I think Mikhail Tal mentioned that, you know, the problem of Batvinik is that not only he wants to teach the computer to think like him, his problem is that he thinks he knows how he thinks, hmm. you know? So that's that's the challenge. That's the challenge here. Okay. Yeah. And, and last thing on your coach, he actually... To your point about him showing you all these sort of classic themes, he has a new chessable course out called uh, Lessons from the Classic Center Play, which where I'm sure he was able to draw on his vast knowledge. And there's there's a free preview, um, like a free 15 minute video that listeners can check out if they're interested in in um, seeing David's material. So, so Dennis, this has been uh, quite insightful as I expected. Now, my big question for you: I have my own theories about the answer to this, but you're doing things that it sounds like, you know, as as we've discussed, it's not you're not reinventing the wheel. There's nothing like totally out of left field that other people have not mentioned before. But you are having success that's quite rare. Um, so do you have any theories for for why that might be? I mean, success is a very relative term, right? Uh, I, I think I mentioned this in my Reddit post, you know, every at any level whether I'm 1600 rated or 1800 or 2000, I'm always thinking that my chess is absolutely terrible, but maybe, you know, 200 points, 300 points later is when real chess starts. So right now I'm also playing against some stronger players. I would, you know, get beaten pretty badly in some tournaments. And I look at this and I think, all right, you know what, maybe 2300 USCF is where it becomes more like high quality chess right but what i'm doing right now there are so many mistakes this is so terrible the problem is that maybe when i was 1700 i was thinking exactly the same way right so not necessarily this is um you know this is a conclusive success but at least i hope i'm moving in the right direction and i think the biggest thing is just developing some maybe system some approach and sticking to it and uh, not shying away from doing something that you're not necessarily comfortable doing. Uh, because I think with most activities, chess specifically, and maybe even more so in recent years, there are a lot of maybe uh, opportunities for instant gratification, right? When you can just watch a YouTube video and say that, all right, you know, I studied chess for 30 minutes. Well, maybe, maybe yes, but maybe no, right? You can watch some YouTube videos and take notes and think about this and, you know, play through some games that are being shown. Or you can just, you know, enjoy some entertainment and, uh, you know, have fun. But then it has nothing to do with actual studying, right? And maybe sometimes it's doing something that's a little bit painful for you, something that's a little bit uncomfortable, doing something that you might think is boring. Uh, but also knowing that, you know, any activity, anything you do in this life has a routine component, has an exciting component, and it's very difficult to have just all the pleasures without, without having some more painful things. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, you can have a lot of different experiences along the way. Uh, consistency is always important, right? Just doing a little bit, even if you are not in your best shape, you don't have too much time, just, you know, 
do something. Do, doing something is always doing better than doing nothing. And um, yeah, I think being generally open-minded, trying to learn things, being open to feedback, um, and not reinventing the wheel, right? Yeah. There are a lot of different curriculums. There are a lot of different systems, a lot of approaches, and uh, just pick what works for you and try to work with it. You know, there are a lot of programs. There are a lot of coaches out there. There are a lot of classes, courses, whatever you can come up with. I think there are plenty of opportunities to study chess. Just, just you know, be open-minded. Okay. Yeah. Consistency is what I would, what I had hit on too. Yeah. It really stands out to me. And for listeners who heard my interview with uh, NM Todd Bryant, where he looked at uh, a lot of the most accomplished improvers in the U S and just without necessarily knowing all of them, but knowing some of them and looking at their rating graphs uh, as Todd highlighted, uh, they, they just competed so often. So the fact that you're doing that and putting in a lot of work on top of that, um, I'm, I'm glad to see that, uh, that it's paying off. Although of course there are more important things in life than rating points anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to see that, that, that the hard work for now is, is leading to good things. Um, and when you play weekend tournaments, uh, Dennis, is your approach any different? Do you play all the, like, do you ever skip a round, um, how do you how do you approach it when the club games as opposed to the weekend grinders? Yeah, I try not to take uh, all these uh, shortened schedules. For example, when you can fit the same number of games into fewer uh, same number of games into fewer days, uh, like for example, there are certain tournaments where you can play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday two games per day, and it gets you to six rounds. Or sometimes you can take a two-day schedule. That would mean that you play three rapid games on Saturday morning, and then you play a long game on Saturday afternoon, and then you have two more games on Sunday. I tried doing that. I realized that by the end of my third rapid game, I'm pretty much dead, and I want to go crawl back home, you know, and get some rest. And the long game in the evening is not not helping not helping the issue, right? So I try to stick to full schedules. If I don't have time, for example, to play to play on Friday, I would take a buy in first two rounds and then have a proper four-round tournament as opposed to trying to fit everything in. Uh, another thing is just feeling where you are in terms of the form, in terms of your current mood and, you know, your current mindset. And maybe trying to make some adjustments based on that. Like, for example, I had an instance where I offered a quick draw in the last round because, you know, I didn't really feel like I was in my best shape to play. And sometimes you just get tired and you think, all right, you know what? This game decides nothing. Apparently, it's the same case for my opponent. I just want to get out of this tournament. It's been horrible, right? And then you try to cut your losses and, you know, uh, try not to suffer through what you don't have to suffer through. Uh, with that, obviously, you know, you have a little bit of flexibility in choosing your openings or, you know, approaches to the game. Sometimes you want a quiet, peaceful game where you think, all right, I'm going to get something playable and I can play that. Sometimes you feel like you want blood, you know, and then you go after something sharp, you know, some very precise variations. Uh, and uh, you you. You, you feel like, you know, you're you're in a good spot to pursue this strategy. Uh, it's also interesting how it works in each subsequent day based on how the previous day went. Like, for example, if you have two painful blunders and two painful losses on Saturday, it's sort of difficult to get yourself together and continue playing on Sunday. And I still do, and I learn a lot about, you know, how to approach this better and how to, you know 
not necessarily forget about what happened, but at least try to start the next day from, from a clean page and, you know, just do your best given the circumstances. But I know sometimes, you know, you lose two games in a row to maybe opponents you should not have lost to, and then you come back home and you cannot get to sleep until 2 a.m. or something, and then next morning you wake up at 7 and you go play. Uh, that's also something to learn. And by the way, in that sense, having a good coach is also helpful because there is also a great deal of advice when it comes to tournament strategy, when it comes to you know some psychological elements of the struggle and uh, all these related things that whatever you know whatever you're facing in these tournaments it's it's not a new problem you know many people have had the same thing before so it's 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 helpful it's important when someone can explain you what are potential options okay great advice and um, i think my my last question then is i mean of course you mentioned my system having made a difference for you in your earlier years um where do chess books fit into your chess life and do you have any favorites stay tuned for more book recommendations and final thoughts from dennis markov we'll be right back and we are back Oh, I, I I absolutely love chess books. I, you know, we can record a whole new episode <laughs> on chess books only, and I can I can you know walk you through my bookshelf. Uh, some of the recommendations I had, obviously, I mentioned uh, Arthur Yusupov's book. Yes, yeah, that's the you build know, up your are, chess series. Yeah, yep, yep. That's that's ten books. You have the orange level, you have the blue level, and the green level, and they probably have some more appropriate proper names you know but but this is what they're known for you know you can just search for use of books on google and you will find this whole series of 10 books uh something i recently something i recently read some books i really liked uh sam shanklin's books on pawn play these are really good very good illustrative examples uh endgame strategy by uh, mikhail sherishevsky a uh, long time classic, amazing book. I feel like, you know, when it comes to specifically strategic topics, endgame strategy is a good place to begin uh, at just because it's it's a little bit simpler in a way that, you know, you have fewer pieces on the board and ideas are more clear. And then this endgame knowledge somehow translates into some middle game components as well. At least it teaches you to think in plans, in concepts, in ideas, you know, in schemes, not just, you know, if I do this, my opponent does that and I will do this, but like, where do I need to position my bishop so that let's say this breakthrough on the king side is working. Right. And then when you start thinking in these terms, you know, it kind of gets you to some deeper, deeper level of understanding. Uh, Johan Halston books on middle game and end game strategy as well. Again, you know, almost classical books by now. I've heard about them many times on, on, on the podcast, but, you know, also, also read both of them and they're super helpful. Uh, Long-term classic, Grandmaster Flores Rios, uh, the book about pawn structures. Yeah, chess structures. Uh, yeah, not necessarily this is a full guide on all the potential structures you might get, but at least when you go through some examples there, at least through structures that you, you face pretty often, you sort of realize the right way of thinking about this. When you see some typical plans for each side, and then you know when you know these typical plans, you can also go through database, find a lot of games, and see, all right, this is what this plan is looking like, this is what's being implemented in this game, and this is what they're trying to do, and it gives you just better idea. For example, you know, a, pick any opening, you know, French defense, advanced variation you know that's a typical pawn structure and you have some ideas around it you go through this book you go through some games and 
even though you may not necessarily know all the exact move orders yet, your level of understanding improves dramatically because you, you get the idea of what's happening. And then there is a great book by Ivan Sokolov, Winning Middle Game Strategies. I would say it's very similar to the book on pawn structures, but it's way more advanced. It's way more difficult, but it's also uh, it's also very interesting. It's just a good deal of pretty deep examples. And I feel like, you know, going through this book, first, it's interesting. Second, it's deep. Third, even if you don't play certain structures, uh, some of the strategic topics, they sort of overlap with what you might be playing. Like, you know, one. I think the first chapter was about double pawns you get out of Nimza Indian, you know, when, when uh, Black takes on uh, C3 and you capture with the B pawn, and then you get these double pawns on uh, B3 and C4, and, you know, Black tries to attack C4, and White tries to develop some initiative on the king side. And there are a lot of intricacies there, but I think there are about 12 different examples related to this specific pawn structure. And there are plenty of good ideas where you just feel like, all right, you know, I'm starting to understand something here. You know, some ideas come together because it's just, you know, it's 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 a it's a good book with a lot of good good examples. And obviously, Ivan Sokolov is an amazing coach um, who put. I mean, I think you had a you had you had him on the podcast. It was a great episode, and he spoke about his uh, coaching career as well. Yeah. So I, I guess these are some of the most recent recommendations. I can keep going. I can give you like another 20, but uh, these are my recent favorites at least. Yeah. Sokolov, I'm a huge fan of his. I actually haven't had a chance to interview him for Perpetual Chess. I interviewed him for How to Chess. Then it hasn't, oh, right. it has, Here we go. Right, right. It hasn't been released mm-hmm. actually, and I'm hoping it will see the light of day soon. Um, but in any event, I'm someone I'd love to interview at some point, but he's done. You're probably thinking of a great interview he did with uh, Chess Base India. He did like a little media tour especially um after uh after his success coaching the uzbek team but yeah a a great author and content creator and uh entertaining as well so um yeah fantastic recommendation recommendations throughout dennis as i expected of course i'm a fan of all the books you mentioned uh as well um and yeah i just think that there's there's a lot for people to learn from your your general no-nonsense sort of long-range approach to uh daily chess practice um do you have anything to add before before we wrap up dennis yeah i mean look i uh i i i mean i I hope my experience might be might might be helpful, might be useful for for some people. But I'm also curious about other people's experience. So definitely, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on Instagram. It's dvm0101, or you can send me an email to dvmarkov at uh, gmail.com. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, opinions, maybe some advice you have to share. Maybe, you know, some people would say that, you know, that's that's all complete nonsense and something else works for me. Or maybe, you know what, this is going to work up to a certain level and then you will be struggling with something. Uh, again, I think none of the struggles that I'm facing in my development are new. Many people went through the same experience. Many people had same same type of situations. So I'm really curious to hear from other people and try to learn from them. Okay, excellent. I'll uh, I'll make a note in the show notes, as always, of the Instagram account and email address. So anyone driving or walking around, you don't have to. You don't have to crash your car and, and uh, try to write it down. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, chase that down for you. But yeah, uh, Dennis, thanks again. Look forward to seeing you at a local tournament sooner or later. Um, now that I found a, a chess league, I'm struggling to make it to the weekend tournaments. And I feel like you might be in the same boat. We both missed the one in New Jersey recently. But sooner or later, I'm sure we'll uh, meet IRL again. 
Thank you, Ben. It's it's been a pleasure, and uh, good luck, good luck with with the forthcoming episodes, and uh, good luck with your podcast. As I said, I'm a huge fan, and I'm looking forward to to what you else have to offer the chess community. Podcast Network.